Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. In the final teaching in this Advent series, Pastor Nate Bowers reflects on how the suffering servant is revealed in the poetry of Isaiah as our true advocate. We've been exploring the writings of the prophet Isaiah, who wrote about 600 years before Jesus was even born. And Isaiah wrote to the people of God in a time when they were perplexed. It was a time of darkness. They were wondering how God would bring about his restoration to the world. So Isaiah, with the power of the Spirit of God, speaking prophetically through him, began to tell about this servant, this mysterious servant figure who Israel would have said, who is this guy that you're talking about? You're prophesying about this one who's going to come. Who is this servant who would come and bring restoration and justice? And for me personally, as we've been exploring these writings of Isaiah, I have been drawn to a different story over the last couple weeks. And maybe you have too, and you don't even know it. Another story has been capturing the public lately. The story about another figure who would come. This story has recently been catapulted back into the public sphere. The story began back in 1999 and continues to capture people's hearts and minds and imaginations. And that is the story of the Matrix. (laughs) The world has once again been invited into the world of the Matrix. And I'm not necessarily recommending that everybody see it, but if you want to talk about it, we can talk later. But if you're unfamiliar, about the story of the Matrix. It is a story of the adventures of Neo and Trinity and Morpheus and these different characters who battle against these machines that have taken over the world. And as I've been re-watching and thinking again about the story of the Matrix, the essence of the story is that there is an oracle, a prophet, who prophesies about there's going to be the one who will come. And the one will set all things right. So throughout the series, as you're watching it, you're asking, is this the one? Is he the one? Is he the one who will do what the oracle had prophesied about? Is he the one who, even in the world of the Matrix, the people that have been rescued out are in a place called Zion? And will the prophecy, the oracle, be true of what he's saying about the one? So the essence of the Matrix, which there's a new movie that just came out, it's the fourth in the series, have yet to see it. But the essence of what the Matrix is talking about hits a similar vein to what Isaiah has been telling the people of God themselves in Zion, that one will come who will set all things right. One will come who will suffer on behalf of the people. And so if you remember from last week, We looked at Isaiah 53 about the suffering that this servant would endure. And so today, here in Isaiah 50, we're going back a couple chapters, but we're going to get a different perspective on this servant because today, whose voice are we going to hear in Isaiah? In one sense, when we read the scriptures, it is the Holy Spirit who is speaking to us. But last week, if you remember, in Isaiah 53, we heard Isaiah telling us about this servant. So in one sense, it was third person. He will do this, the servant will do this, he will endure this, this will happen to the servant. Who speaks to us today in Isaiah 50? 
It's the servant himself. The servant himself in the first person is describing his experience. It's almost like the difference between a biography and an autobiography. If, if you don't know the difference, I'm about to tell you. A biography is somebody telling about somebody's life. And biographies are good. They're use, it's great to read biographies. What's an autobiography? That's the person themselves telling you about their experience, about what they endured, about their own observations and thinkings about what's happening in their life. And that is what we get in Isaiah 50. Isaiah 50 gives us an autobiographical sketch of the servant from the servant's own words. So I'm going to read a short section for us today. This is Isaiah chapter 50. We're going to start in verse 4. Isaiah 50 verse 4 says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. Verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend or fight with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Let's pray. Jesus, as we look at this last prophecy from Isaiah about your life, we ask, Spirit of the living God, the Spirit who woke up Jesus' body out of the grave, that you, Spirit, would speak to us today. I pray that through my words, your people today would be encouraged and see the life of Jesus for them, that we would see the life, the story that Jesus has called us into, and that even in this Advent celebration that we're in, that we would continually see Jesus, the servant, the one in whom all the prophecies have come true. So we ask for your help, Jesus, right now. Amen. As I said, today we get to hear from the servant himself, from Jesus speaking to us. And if you think about it, that's pretty unique in the scriptures. Within the, the whole canon of the scriptures, of the Bible, there's a lot of different voices that we hear, but often we only think it's in the Gospels, the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, giving biographical accounts of Jesus. We often think that's the only place you hear the voice of Jesus, but here, the servant, Jesus himself is addressing us. But this morning, the main takeaway is not going to be the experience of the servant, which we heard about last week, the experience of what he endured but we want to ask today about the why. How, why did he endure that? How could he endure that? Not just details about what he experienced, but the why and the how of his experience. What we need to realize is that he doesn't just tell us details of his life, but he actually tells us how he could obey God in the way that he did. What we'll see today is that because the sovereign Lord advocated for the servant, the servant will now advocate for his people. Well, since I just gave you a huge spoiler on the whole sermon, so there you go. 
So let's dig into this passage a little bit and begin to ask some questions here about this. Let's first look at the fact that the servant is the one who listens and obeys. Look with me at verse, uh, jump back into Isaiah 50. We're going to look at specifically verses 4 and 6. At the beginning of this section, Isaiah 50 and verse 1 and 2, Isaiah is telling how no one listens. No one hears the voice of God. God called out to his people and it says no one answered. But in verse 4, one comes who will listen. One who will respond to God's call. And if you jump to the end, in verse 10, we see that that is the servant. As you know, from just reading the Bible, even within our series, you know that Israel was unconvinced of the Lord's love and his power. But we see this servant is very convinced of the Lord's power. Look at verse 4. The servant says that he was given the understanding of someone who has been taught, someone who has submitted, someone who has awakened each day, listening for the voice of God. The servant, as the representative, is one who listened and obeyed. Can you recall a time in the Bible when God called out to another representative who didn't listen? When God called out to another representative and said, where are you? And this representative did not listen and did not obey. This is where we learn how to rightly read our Bibles that when we come to a place like this of, wait, here's the servant, he's representing the people, he's going to listen and obey. Wait a minute, do I know of another time when that happened, but it didn't go that way. Adam, the very beginning, Adam, the representative of humanity, our father in sin, Adam, God called to him, but he refused to listen because he had not obeyed. Isaiah 50 is showing us that this servant is a second Adam. This servant is one who will come and will do for Adam and for Israel and for us what we have, could not do for ourselves. So we see this servant listens and obeys. But how does this servant, though, relate to God? This is something I want you to catch. Maybe you didn't see it. Look back at the passage, Isaiah 50, 4 through 9. Look at verses 4, 5, 7, and 9. How is God described by the servant? What is the name of God that he uses? Your Bible, what was that? Sovereign. Sovereign. Your Bible might say Lord God. My translation that I use says Lord God. But this could better be translated Sovereign Lord. Verses 4, 5, 7, and 9 all have the name Sovereign Lord. And often when we read our Bibles, we just think, okay, well, this is the name of God. But friends, this is not just a random title. This name is very intentionally used because this is the basis for the servant's confidence in the Lord, that he, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, is the sovereign Lord. Within this name, this little name in your Bible, Lord God or Sovereign Lord, is built the entire structure of the history of the people of God. It's not just a name. The very history of the people of God who knew God to be a God of covenant faithfulness. He's the God who birthed a nation out of Abraham. He's the God who rescued a people out of Egypt with the exodus away from Pharaoh. He's the God who sustained his people and led them to the promised land. How do we know who he is and recall all of that? We call him the sovereign Lord. Names have meaning. Names have power. And here the servant doesn't just refer to God as the Lord. 
but the sovereign God who keeps his promise to his people. So the servant not only hears and obeys, but he knows that God is the promise-keeping God. And it's because he knows that he can actually obey God. So that's the second thing that we see, that the servant's faith in this sovereign Lord is what gave him the ability to endure shame and endure suffering. It's not just because the servant was super strong within himself. It's because he put his confidence in the power of who God actually was. Look at verses 5 and 6. The servant didn't turn his back on suffering, but he actually obeyed his sovereign Lord, even when it meant going into shame and suffering. Look at verse 6. The description given in verse 6 says that he gave his back to those who strike, to his beard being plucked. Kind of odd to us. And yes, these are descriptors of pain. Your beard, getting, your hair getting pulled out, having your back laid out as people are striking your back. Yes, those are descriptors of pain, but more so, they're pointing to shame. These are acts that would be shameful, having someone spit in your face, having someone pluck and disfigure what you, what you look like. But it says the servant didn't turn his back on the shame, but he faced it head on. Today's the day of movies, I guess, because I'm going to draw your attention to another movie. I don't know if you've seen uh, the movie The Passion of the Christ. Has anyone seen that movie? It's a very graphic, very uh, visually disturbing depiction of the last 12 hours of Jesus. Again, I'm not necessarily going to recommend you see it, but if you have seen it, you know what that movie's all about. It depicts the final 12 hours of Jesus' life. And for me... One scene in that movie stands out amongst all the rest. For me, it's the most powerful scene. Throughout the movie, Jesus has been handed over, he's been whipped, he's been beaten. As verse 6 says, he was given his back over to those who were, who were striking. He's led outside the city. He's brought up onto the hill Golgotha. He's outside of the gate away from the temple in the presence of God. He's stripped of his robes. In the movie, it doesn't show him fully naked, but in real life, he would have been fully naked as he's about to be crucified. And he falls down to the ground. I don't know if you remember what happens. And what does he do? He crawls to the cross. He crawls towards the cross. His body is shaking and trembling. Most likely he would have been going through shock at the loss of blood and the physical destruction of his body. But he isn't dragged to the cross. He doesn't try to find an escape. He isn't kicking and screaming. He's crawling to the cross with the soldiers jeering all around him. Friends, he's moving into the shame. Look at verse 7. In one sense, it's so powerful thinking. Were these words going through Jesus' head? Verse 7. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. Do you know what a flint is? A flint is something that is designed to be struck. It is something that is designed to withstand blows. It is something 
that is designed to be unmovable. And so Jesus is so resolved, so committed to obeying the sovereign Lord that he says in verse 7, I know I will not be ashamed. But how? How could he move into that type of not just physical punishment, but the shame of what that represented? How could he say that he knows he will not be put to shame? Because his confidence was not in his own power, his own strength, his own fortitude, but he was focused on the promise-keeping God, the God who said, I won't back out on you. The whole world is saying, your God has forsaken you. And the servant knows he's the promise-keeping God. Even when he calls me down paths that I don't understand. Jesus himself here, friends, is actually demonstrating what faith and confidence in God's sovereignty looks like. And this is where, within this little section of Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 9, we take a turn away from the experience of the servant in verses 4 through 6, but now the servant speaks in verses 7, 8, and 9 about the Lord who helps, about the Lord who is able. So the next thing we see is that the servant is fixed on the faithfulness and nearness of God. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 is best translated not just the Lord helps me, which is kind of a general statement, but rather he will help me. The Lord will help me. If you want, even within the margin of your Bible, you can write, he will help me. That's a better translation of that. The servant knew he could endure the shame because the Lord will help. Future tense, look into the future. No matter what I will go through, he will help me. And in fact, what's crazy is that the servant is so confident that the Lord will help him, he actually invites accusation. He actually invites opponents to come and challenge him. Look at verses 8 and 9. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who's my adversary? Let him come near. He's literally inviting opposition to come. Behold, the sovereign Lord helps me. Who will declare me guilty? The language used here, friends, is this imagery of courtroom imagery. Stand up. Try to bring a testimony against me. Oh, here's all my opponents who will bring accusation. Let's hear it. None of it will stand. The servant is saying that if anyone tries to indict him, no one can stand up because the Lord will deliver him. And in the case of Jesus, even resurrect him from the dead. One author says that the wording here, I love this, the wording here demands that we see the Lord is not just standing there with the servant, but the Lord is actively participating as next of kin. The Lord here is described as being actively participating as if he was next of kin, meaning that he's not just near me, meaning present, but he's near me because he's on my team. The Lord is near me because he's on my team. He's actively present with me. Such is the confidence of the servant that he invites this opposition to try to slander him, to try to attack him, to try to come against him. But he knows that no one will be able to because the Lord is actively for him. So friends, if we step back and just look at what we've seen in this short little passage of Isaiah 50, 4 through 9, we see the servant showing us 
what faith in God looks like. The servant doesn't give us a systematic theology of why and how to trust God. He doesn't give us this list of all these things about God that you need to do this and do this. He literally says, here's what it looks like to trust in God. So now, for us, again, Isaiah was writing, looking at this servant. We're now looking back at Isaiah, looking back at Jesus in history we now realize that all of the promises of the covenant were fulfilled in Jesus. So what now is the basis for us of how we know if God will really be faithful? Of how we know, okay, this year was really hard. Here's suffering I've walked through. Here's pain I've walked through. Here's this new year coming up. Here's all these unknowns. How do I know? What is ground zero that the covenant is going to be true? Is it because God promised to Abraham? Is it because he promised to Israel? Is it because of the Exodus? What's the ground of our confidence? It's the servant. The ground of our confidence that God will be faithful is now found in the servant. In Jesus the servant, we now see how all of the promises of God have been made true and are even now continually making untrue all that would oppose or stand against the people of God. I want you to think about that. In Jesus the servant, we now see how all of the promises of God have been made true and are even now continually making untrue all that would oppose or stand against the people of God. Friends, this is because Jesus didn't just trust God, but he trusted God on your behalf to bring us into the story of God, to bring us into being participants in the mission of God. So that means, lastly, that we can see that since the Father has advocated for the servant, the servant now advocates for his people. Think about that. Since we've seen how the sovereign Lord advocated was there on behalf of the servant. That means the servant will now advocate for us, his people. Think about what this means. The sovereign Lord in Isaiah has demonstrated that he would always be faithful to the servant, even when the servant had to undergo humiliation and shame on behalf of the people. But now... For those of us here who have said, I'm throwing my lot in with the servant. I'm going to put my allegiance, my trust in that servant. I'm going to have faith in Jesus. That means the servant now advocates for you. That means he's now choosing to actively participate in your life as your next of kin. Friends, what would, you, what would change in your life if you knew that Jesus was daily advocating for you? What would change in your life? Think about different arenas of your life. Think about different spheres of relationships. Think about your work. Think about the reality of where the world is at right now. Think about your own personal journey through life of where you're at right now. What would change if you knew that Jesus was daily advocating for you? that Jesus was actively choosing to be on your side. What would change when you are called to walk in allegiance to God? What would change when you have to face shame or disgrace, either deserved or undeserved? Friends, if you are someone who is found in the servant today, he is actively for you. 
actively choosing to participate with you even in the nitty-gritty stuff of life. Even the stuff that's just bouncing around in your head all day. Even the stuff that you're too afraid to admit to anybody about your own fears or your own insecurities. The servant is saying, can you trust that to me? Do you think I'm going to show up and leave you? Or am I going to choose to be on your team? Friends, this is what it means to have faith in Jesus. Not just that I, I prayed a prayer when I was six and now I guess I'm a Christian. No, it means to actively see that Jesus is for you in life. And so now, as someone who has faith in Jesus, what now does that change about your life? And if you are here today and you would say, well, I don't know if I have faith in the servant. I don't know if I really do have that kind of faith in Jesus. I would ask you, well, what are you trusting in for your life? Is it your own abilities to figure out life? Is it your own smarts? Oh, I can figure this life out. Or are you realizing, no, I don't have it figured out. I need someone who can do it for me. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Listen to this quote that describes one man's confidence when he realized the type of advocate he had in Christ. Robert Murray Machane says, if I could hear Jesus praying for me in the next room... I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. What are your million enemies? What would change if you knew Jesus is literally right there? He's praying for you. He's advocating for you. He's actively saying, I will show up and be on your team. I am on your team. I showed you that through what I did for you at the cross. I'm committed in covenant to you. What enemies could stand against this then? What fears could not actually begin to be laid to rest and rightly seen when you realize that he's for you in that kind of a way? Friends, the servant is your advocate. Consider these questions as we go to close. What is one area of your life that would change if you actually realize that you have no need of fear? What area of your life right now is just consumed with that type of fear? What would change if you knew the servant was for you? Second question, what enemies would you face? What hard conversations would you be able to have? What enemies do you think you have in your life, but actually you realize they're not actually enemies, but it's just something you're afraid to do? Third question, what voice of accusation and shame would you be able to name and call out and overcome through the power of the servant who is your advocate? As you reflect on 2021, because in case it snuck up on you, it's almost over. This is literally our last Sunday of 2021. As you reflect on this last year, what fears could you lay to rest? Because you know the advocate is actually going with you into 2022. Last question. Can you name those fears? Those fears actually present in your mind? As we now prepare to close out our very last gathering of the year, what better way to do it than to end our time right now with our eyes on this servant? looking to Jesus towards the one who's acted on our behalf, 
to free us from the true enemies so that now we can walk in confidence as the people of God in this world. As the people of God who are living their place out in the story here in Hampton Roads, preparing to step into a new year. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.